I've been told my voice projects, and so I don't even know if I'm mic'd, you know? That's my voice sometimes. Uh, but my name is Scott. I think I was up here five or six weeks ago, and I love coming up here. I, I just feel like this community is fantastic. Love the aesthetics of um, the church that we get to use here and have so many friendly faces. And I say this every time, but it's true. Uh, well, first of all, Andy's on vacation, Pastor Andy. He was praying for me this morning, typical Andy, and he sent me a picture of the sunset he was looking at. So um, I wasn't quite ready to wake up when he texted me. Maybe you've gotten one of those texts from Andy. He's an earlier, but I was really happy to see him. That means he was on vacation. You know, he's enjoying God's creation. And um, I always compare myself, and Andy, I can't help it. He's someone to look up to, admire. And if we were cars... Andy would definitely be a Tesla. He's efficient, he's super stylish, he's really smart, and he's fast. He runs fast. And I'm not a Tesla, if you've never heard me speak before. I'm more like a Kia, and we have a Kia, but Kias are like, they, they've upped their game, you know? They get the job done. So I'm not a Tesla, I'm a Kia, but it, it'll get the job done this morning. So just wanted to let you know that. Also, a quick announcement. Um, this is, for, this is for men, this particular announcement. I put some of these flyers next to the men's sign-up sheet. Uh, we have a men's retreat coming up October 21st through 23rd. It's a Friday night, a Saturday, and a Sunday morning, so it's not even 48 hours. It's up at Rough Acres Ranch, which is about an hour east on the 8th. And, uh, but it's not really rough. It's, you get your own, uh, men get their own room. It's like glamping. Uh, it's a great time. And we just, I just thought, oh, it'd be fun to invite some of the men from this, this church because we're sister churches. And so uh, we also have some discounts. If you need, it's $100 for the weekend. But if you, if you need a discount, let me know. You can, I brought plenty of these flyers, passed them out to your friends. It should be a really good time. I uh, just wanted to mention that. And as we get started this morning, I'm going to light uh, the Christ candle. And this is just a reminder that um, I, it's definitely a privilege and honor to get to speak from God's Word to you today, but it's, it has nothing to do with me. It's about the work that God has been doing into your lives up to this point. And anything that you hear today that is not from God, I'll be the first to tell you, I hope you forget it. I hope it never comes across your mind again. Um, but if it is from God, if there's something from God's word that is particularly moving to you or God is um, using as an invitation in your life, that you would remember it. And so the candle represents that, that Christ's presence is with us, that um, only God and, and Christ illuminates truth and gives us our passions and our desires. And then for us together, it's a reminder that we are called to be a light to the world. All those things are true. And so if, if something happens this morning, just focus on the candle and Christ's presence on you. That's, that's why I really love that. Um, like Carrie said, uh, we're starting a new series this morning, uh, Finishing Well, Lifelong Following of the Messiah. Not everyone who says yes to Jesus follows. And so we are continuing um, Matthew. And we're getting to the part of Matthew, if you've seen this poster, the, I, I highly recommend going to the BibleProject.com, looking at the two Matthew videos. There's really no greater resource. I know they, they do it via cartoon, but the scholarship is top-notch. And we're getting to the part of Matthew where uh, they, I like their phrasing, the clash of kingdoms and warnings. And so it can be a little uncomfortable. So Matthew 21 is our, is our chapter today. We're only going to uh, uh, talk about the middle of it for the most part. And it's, it, it's kind of uncomfortable, but in, in the best way. You know, in your relationships, if you have family meetings, you know how every once in a while there's 
or, or roommate meetings, whatever, the, whatever. You know, sometimes you're, you're sitting at the table and you do need to talk about some of these uncomfortable things for the sake of the family or for the sake of the relationship. And that's kind of what this is. Uh, before I get into Matthew, though, I want to read a familiar verse from 2 Timothy. So when, when Paul, the Apostle Paul is about to, to finish, his life is almost over. He knows that he's passing on everything to one of his protégés, Timothy. This is from uh, 4.7. Uh, where Paul says, basically, my life is, is, I poured out my life as a sacrifice, and he says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. I have fought the good fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith. And then this is how Eugene Peterson translates it in the message. And if you've ever read the message, translation is a little bit different. But uh, I, I don't know Greek anymore, but in seminary, we had to take Greek and we had to do a lot of translation. And we, it, it would be like kind of uh, rough. When we would translate, it would be kind of rough. But then when we finally translated a passage, we would read Eugene Peterson's like, oh, that's basically like the one that I came up with. So uh, it's, it's actually a good translation, but um, uh, he put it this way. Um, it is the only race worth running. I've run hard to the finish, believed all along the way. And I, I, love, I love this idea, and we're actually going to double-click on that this morning, the only race worth running, because we, a lot of us would probably agree with that in our heads, and just like this last song said, but, but we would all also, when we're being thoughtful in moments of clarity, uh, probably admit that there, there can be a gap from our head to our hearts. There can be a gap from our head to our hearts. The good fight that Paul is talking about, that was actually a, a pretty popular Greek idiom in the ancient Near East. And it, 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 was this, it was this idea of another name for it was the beautiful fight. And so I love the, the finishing well aspect of this last part of Matthew because if it's, if it's contentious, if sometimes we want to give up, if sometimes we're doubting when things get hard and, and when sometimes we're questioning, is this really the only race worth running? Um, this, these two things coming together, this dialectic, it is a fight. We should expect that it's a fight, but it's a beautiful fight. And as Paul says, it's the only race worth running. So as we've been in Matthew, we're going to be in Matthew for a little bit longer. And I love how you're, you're, you're spending so much time um, seeping in, a, in, a, in, in this gospel, in a, in a book of the Bible. One of the, if you look at a Greek New Testament, it actually has a word in front of Matthew's name. And the word, the Greek word is, is kata. So it would, it's a, it would say kata Matthias or kata Lucas or whatever the Greek names were in the Greek New Testament, which was the, the, the language that it's written in, ancient Greek. And kata means according to. So it's the gospel according to Matthew. So there's a really good question. The Bible is really good at asking us questions. Yes, it's, it's a good place to, to seek out answers. I'm not saying it's not, but it's actually a really good, probably a better question asker of us. So if I were to ask you, what's the gospel according to you? What's the gospel according to Charlie? He's really good on the bass, by the way. It's a gospel according to care, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What, what would you say? What's the gospel according to you? So for me, if, if the gospel according to Scott, if we were at a Starbucks or something, I, I could probably easily rattle off uh, my stream, just the Christian stream that I've been a part of for the past 30 years, called the evangelical stream, called the word-centered stream. And it, it, somewhere along the lines, uh, as, as has my formation been involved, I would probably quote, you know, Romans 10, 9, uh, uh, confess, profess with your lips, believe in your heart uh, that, that uh, Jesus saved me from 
my sins, and I have eternal life. Something along those lines, right? And my guess is a lot of you in your room would, would answer that too, which is fine. That's definitely a part of it. As Scott McKnight writes about in, in his book, King Jesus uh, Gospel, it's a really, really good book, that's, that's actually a, a plan of salvation, but it's not, it's not the whole gospel. And I, I've learned that over the years, and, and it's, 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 it was hard news, but it's really good news. Another scholar by the name of N.T. Wright, really amazing, and another uh, pastor and scholar, he said it like this, whenever we turn a half-truth into the whole truth, it becomes untrue. Whenever we turn a half-truth into the whole truth, it becomes untrue. So another way of saying that is, if it's, our tradition has had a tendency, a proclivity, to take the plan of salvation, an individual, by the way, individual plan of salvation, and made it the entire gospel. And that's actually not the gospel. Yeah, there's an individual part to it, for sure. Thank God there is. I would even put out there, we, 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 might, we might take that for granted. We might not be grateful enough that we have hope and healing and grace and salvation because there's nothing that I can do to save myself and I don't think there is anything that you can do either. So yes, of course, but that is, when, that, when we reduce it to that, that makes everything so small. And if we're honest, it kind of makes God controllable, doesn't, doesn't it? It makes God controllable. And, and then it's not really God anymore. We're not really worshiping God. We're not really following God. So when we talk about finishing well, well, we're not really talking about following God finishing well. We're just kind of talking about what we can know and control and feel comfortable about. And that's important. That's, it's kind of a hard family meeting thing at times. And I realize that can, that can feel uncomfortable. But if you, if you take like, let's say the, the, uh, a lot of people, a lot of scholars, whatever, believe that Mark was actually the first gospel written. There's an oral tradition. Bible Project talks about that. But Mark was the first one that's kind of pinned. It's really short, to the point. And the first chapter in Mark, I mean, he by, it's short. It's, he bypasses the, the birth narrative and, and anything over that. The first chapter, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Jesus is proclaiming the good news. That's what the gospel means. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God. That's, one, that's the first thing that Mark records that he says when he's talking about the gospel. It's actually about the kingdom of God. Is there an individual component of that? I, of course there is, but that, that's not the gospel. It's a part of it. It's an important part of it, but that's not the gospel. And then some would say before the gospels are written, we don't know for complete short, uh, certainty, but the letters to the Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians might be the first New Testament thing that was that was codex that was that was pinned it might be the earliest new testament document there's there's debate is it thessalonians is it corinthians whatever but it's possible it's corinthians so paul he's very explicit in this and if you read uh, chapter 15 i'm, I'm going to remind you of the gospel that i preached to you that i'm passing on the implication here is that that you're going to pass on this is like of highest importance this is the only race worth running right that, and he said it this way. And, and this is one of those things that kind of needs a double take. So a first reading, it's like, okay, that, yeah, I know that. It's no big deal. Yeah, that's, that, that's salvation. Duh, right? He says, according to the scriptures, Christ died and was buried. According to the scriptures, 
Christ was raised. According to the scriptures, Christ appeared. The rest of the chapter, he, the implication he talks about is the restoration of God's kingdom. And then he concludes that portion with, because God is all in all. And according to the scriptures, assumes his audience understands this story of God from the beginning about God's creation, creating people in his own image. And when people chose to rebel against God and go their own way, God started this restoration program for people and reconciliation and the whole earth. That is the gospel. The kingdom of God, this, this super big thing that we can't really grasp, but we know somehow we're drawn to and we're a part of, that God is all in and all. So again, going back to this idea of what is the gospel according to Scott, it's mostly been about the plan of salvation, if I'm honest, and this individual idea that I'm, I'm covered. You know, I know God loves me. I know when I die, I'm going to be with God. And yes, that is true. The implication for me, <clears throat> and I think what could be for all of us, is that when we believe that way, when we believe that's all there is, it's really easy for us to hedge our bets. Is this the only race worth running? So if, uh, hypothetically, if a CIA agent were to follow me around, and my father-in-law, by the way, was ex-FBI, so if you've ever seen Meet the Parents, I never had to do a polygraph, but, <laughs> but let's say a CIA agent was following me around. They were tapping my phone, you know, text. They, they knew every single YouTube video I watched and how much time I spent on YouTube, if they knew where I spent my money, and if they somehow knew from my communications, if they, you know, if they tapped our house or whatever, and they knew my conversation with my wife and the people closest to me, like, would my life exhibit the only race worth running in this kingdom of God gospel? Or would it really exhibit like, well, I know that my individual salvation, I'm good, so now I'm like, I'm hedging my bets. And one of the ways we kind of would, could answer that particularly would be, you know, what, what are we anxious about? And I'm probably like you. I'm anxious about money, like uncomfortably so. Like I'm preoccupied with it if, if I'm not careful. And then my kids. Uh, my kids, they, they got to get good grades. They got to get into a good school. They got to find their thing. If they don't find their thing, who are they? Who are my kids if they don't have their thing? And if they're not the best at that thing, are they not going to get a scholarship? And then well, what if they don't go to a good college and they're not going to get a good job? And that's what I'm super anxious about. Might be different for you. But I, what, I'm, what I'm suggesting, though, is like I know, and we're all works in progress. I'm telling you, this is my journey of surrendering all that but I hedge my bets. This is the only race worth running, but just in case, just in case, just in case, it's not like that. The classics called this, this idea um, of, we're all driven towards this unconscious goal, this unconscious vision of the good life. And the Latin for it is summum bonum. Can you say that with me? Summum bonum. It's kind of fun to say. Summum bonum. Summum bonum. Summum bonum. It's kind of fun, right? It's kind of a fun word. Uh, but it's this idea of the, the highest good. Um, 
this is like way too simplistic, and so you could find an article easily. It's like it's way more complicated than that. It totally is, but just for sake of time. So in the classics, there were kind of two competing summum bonums, like what is the good life? Uh, one of them, what you probably heard about this ancient uh, literature, the, the Stoic version was the, the virtues, like this, this character virtue. And so the good life was developing this good character of, of faithfulness, this heroic character. And then kind of one could say on the opposite end of the scale, it was the Epicureans, and their highest good was, was pleasure. That, that, that kind of sounds a little like crude, but like happiness. Like, my highest good is feeling good. That's it. My highest good is feeling good. And they were somewhat competing. And you probably can guess that the Bible just kind of blows both of those out of the water. It's, it's like neither, the highest good is neither one of those. But if I were to ask you, what do you think, like, unconsciously, being, being born in the past 60 years in the United States... What, what do you think the highest good is? Like, again, it's unconscious. It might not be a fancy word. What do you think it is? And you, you don't have to answer out loud, but just kind of think about that. Augustine, and this is in the fourth century. This is how majorly prophetic this is, and it's, it's basically right. Augustine put it this way. This is English translation, but he, he says, my weight is my love. Wherever I go, my love is carrying me. What he's saying is, we're, we're driven really by our heart's desires. We're not, we're not driven by the things we think we're driven by. We're driven by this motor, this internal motor in our hearts, and it's, it's a desire, and that desire is based on what our vision of the good life is, what the race that we're running. What do we think is the, what do we think is the race that's worth running? We're unconsciously motivated. We make our decisions. It, 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 it gives us our passions. It enlivens us. In 1914, a long time ago, over 100 years ago, these two ships collided, and 41 sailors died off the coast of Virginia. The steamship Monroe was rammed by another ship called the Nantucket. And the ship of the Nantucket, the captain, got put on trial because 41 sailors died, and his ship hit the Monroe. But during the trial... Captain Johnson was his name of the Monroe. Captain Johnson, actually, it was discovered that he was using a steering compass, which was common for the trade. He wasn't doing anything that any other steamship uh, uh, captain was, wasn't doing, a steering compass. The problem is the steering compass was two degrees off a magnetic compass. The magnetic compass is like the true north compass. I mean, we know that today. And, and, it, and it never got adjusted. So it wasn't checked. That's just part of their trade. So it was actually Captain Johnson's compass that was off by two degrees, and that's why the ships collided. And it's a good reminder to us that we unconsciously have this vision of the good life, the summum bonum, and that unconsciously is really dictates the race we're running, which is going to determine what, what we think is finishing well. And if we don't take the uncomfortable time to recalibrate that, then there could be, I don't know, there could be disastrous consequences. And I realize that's a stretch, that metaphor from what Jesus is talking about, but he is, he is starting to give these warnings. And yes, it's towards the religious leaders. Yes, it's towards the ones that are influencing the people. But, but there's also something in it for us as well, because following Jesus earnestly 
will change what the weight of our love is. It, it'll change the compass of our hearts, which is really uncomfortable. If, if you were like me, I, I have a co- both a cognitive dissonance and a heart dissonance. Uh, like Paul says in Romans 7, when I'm thoughtful about it, I'm, I'm at war with my desires. Like I know what God wants for me, but oh, this would be so nice, you know, to not have these cares about money or whatever, whatever the case may be. I'm going to read a portion of Matthew 21 now. It's a really long chapter. I'm going to read two of these, these portions. It starts in 23, and I'll give a little background after that. So starting in 20, verse 23, again, Jesus um, has approached Jerusalem at this point for his last Passover, and he's coming back in the next day to teach. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you a question. What did I tell you about the Bible asking questions? If you answer me, I will tell you by what my authority that I'm doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and said, well, if we say from heaven... He will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we are afraid of the people, for they, they hold John the Baptist as a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Then Jesus said, my commentary, pretty coy of him, well, neither will I tell you what the authority I am doing these things. Then he goes on to tell a couple parables. I'll just tell the first one. What do you think? What do you think about this? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of these two sons did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Wow. First of all, if we were if we were in if we were flies on that temple court wall, that would be record scratch. That'd be oh I'm I'm out of here. Like it's gonna go down. I don't know. Like they might they might crucify him right now. That is like that's that's a big deal. What he just said. For John came to show you the way of righteousness, and you do not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. You did not repent and believe him. So those two stories are going to be kind of the focus of this idea of what Paul says, the only race worth running, and what this kind of idea we have in our back of our head of the highest good, the summum bottom. Bottom. Yes, it's still fun to say. (laughs) This first portion, when they're trying to trap Jesus, I think that question, that's one of those questions that can go, not in a shaming way, but I think can live with us throughout the week. What, and what I'm believing about God, about myself and others, is that from human origin or is that from heaven? Now, there might be some things where we could immediately discern the difference. Of course. Of course, of course we could. But there's a lot like an iceberg underneath the surface that would take time for us to really discern, is this, like my cares and concerns in XYZ, is this, is this of human or, origin Is this a neurotic thought, or is this from God? Is this really from God? And 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 by the way, community is 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 also how we how we how we test those things. So that's a really important question. I want us to kind of 
keep, keep in our minds. Then this other idea that Jesus talks about, repenting and believing. That's something maybe we've heard uh, for a while, especially if we've either grown up in the church or been part of church for a while. It's, it's a word that's used a lot in Scripture, repenting and believing. We're, we're going to come back to that because that's important. I think a uh, 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 correct understanding of that could actually help us approach God and consider the race that we're running. So as the Bible Project talks about in Matthew, the whole purpose of Matthew is really to show that Jesus is the reality of the, the promised Messiah. Jesus is the promised Messiah. Jesus is also the new and the greater Moses. So to really appreciate that, before Jesus, Moses was, was the, the everything of the Israelites. The, the, the major prophet, the major leader, um, after Abraham, the, the, the big covenant that gave the Ten Commandments, um, wrote the first five books of the Bible the, the, the called the Pentateuch. I mean, Moses was the Moses. Moses was everything. And then the deliverance from Egypt in Exodus, that was the major salvific event that, that filtered everything in the Scriptures, in the Old Testament Scriptures. And by the way, that was Jesus' Bible, was the Old Testament Scriptures. His worship hymnal was the Psalms. So all the Psalms are interpreted through the Exodus event where God saved his people from Egyptian bondage and slavery miraculously. So it was Moses. Moses was the leader. So Matthew is basically saying yes to Moses, but Jesus is the salvation not only for the Israelites, but the entire world. And so Matthew's gospel can almost be called the gospel of the kingdom. And he's telling these parables, and he's asking us questions like, what if the kingdom of God were really like this? Imagine, imagine if God were like this. And then he tells these parables. And they, and they, they are meant to kind of shake us up. Like, wait a second, that's, that's the kingdom of God? And some of them are a little bit confusing. Some of them are uncomfortable. Like the parable of the tenants, if you keep reading. That's a pretty uncomfortable parable. And it's also foreshadowing, and Jesus is prophesying his own death. The writing is on the wall. Like God has given himself to you, and you're going to kill him. So it's not just a warning for us. I mean, it's a warning like, and it all goes back to this Moses. So one of the key passages in scriptures is in Deuteronomy 30, where Moses is giving his last will and testament. He says, I have set before you through God the way of life and the way of death. Choose life. And now Jesus is saying, through me, I have set the way before you of life and death. Now choose life. And even though I love you, I want you, even these religious leaders who are rebelling against him and are going to kill him, I love you too. I want you to choose life, even though he knows that they're going to choose death and they're going to kill him. That's kind of the context of what's going on here. And then chapter 1 is so loaded. So it begins with the Palm Sunday passage. That's, sometimes that's the only time we read that passage. It, the, we call it the triumphal entry. And Jesus rides in on a donkey. And we're like, oh, that's interesting. But in, in the, again, the first readers, it would have been more than just interesting. It would have beckoned all these other kind of would-be messiahs, these would-be promised saviors of the world who up until this point had failed. Give you one example. By the way, you can read about two of them in Acts 5. Remember when the apostles get, get caught preaching the gospel and they're going to put them on trial, like you have to stop this? And then they say, hey, we, we, we have to follow God, not people. And then uh, Gamaliel talks to them, to the council, and he says, look, remember all the other would-be messiahs? 
they, they were quelled pretty easy. They died. If this, is, if this is not from God, which we don't think it is, it's not going to amount to anything. So he lists two of them in Acts 5. So one of them, almost 200 years before Christ, in 160, no, 100 years, 67 B.C., the Jewish people were being occupied and impressed by empire after empire after empire. And so at this point, it was the, before the Romans, it was the Seleucid Empire. And uh, one of their kings, he went into the, when they rebuilt the temple, remember Nehemiah and Ezra, they rebuilt the temple. He went into the temple, he conquered the temple, and he put a statue of Zeus. That is a no-no to the Israelites. That's the worst thing that you could do is to desecrate their temple because they believe this is God's home, this is where God lives, this is God's presence. Desecrated the temple. It fired the Israelites so much that this leader named Judas the Maccabee, he rode in with his army, and they would have thought, oh, this is, this is the Messiah. Rode into Jerusalem, people were waving palm branches, and they were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. He cleared the temple, he cleared the emperor's troops, and he replaced all the, the parts of the temple that were supposed to be there, and they pretty much destroyed the statues of Zeus. Now that may not seem like that much of a big deal, but it is a really big deal. And, he, and, they, and Jerusalem was back for a couple decades. And then the Hasmonean kings entered into corruption again and compromise. And by the time Jesus' day, they were firmly under the oppressive rule of the Romans again. And so when Jesus rides in in Matthew 21, this is like, oh, it's, it's on again. The agenda is back. We're going to kick the Romans out. It's, it's going to be bloody, but there has to be blood. We're going to rule, and Jesus is going to be like Judas the Maccabee. But this time, it's going it's to last. We're not going to enter into corruption again. And basically, with the Romans in power again, after this is after the northern kingdom fell, almost 800 years by now, different empires, there was three kind of options that people chose. And what, what do we do with this Roman occupation? And it kept getting increasingly worse because they would, they would uh, overly tax the oppressed peoples, particularly the Jewish people. So they had these religious freedom, but their life kept getting more difficult and difficult and difficult to the point where you probably heard this indentured uh, slavery and slavery became the norm. Like up to a third of the, the population of that region was slaves or indentured servants because of the successive taxation. So there's three responses. As the Sadducees, they would compromise with Rome. They typically be the aristocrats. This was Matthew, the writer of this gospel. He was a tax collector. They compromised with Rome. They were hated the most. The Pharisees and the Zealots, they were basically like, hey, the reason why God's not in the temple anymore is because we're corrupt and we need to get back to holiness. And the Zealots were Pharisees except for they believed to do it through violence. So there were a lot of skirmishes. A lot of people got crucified. Those were the zealots. Remember Simon the Zealot? So Jesus, in his 12 disciples, had a tax collector and Simon the Zealot. Would have been natural enemies. Like if they were in a Jewish pub, they didn't call them pubs, they would have like come to blows. One of them probably wouldn't have walked out of there. That's how cool Jesus is. And then the Essenes, and their whole idea was just to get out of here. We're going to escape. This whole thing's going to be destroyed we, we, just, we, want, we want God to know we're not, we're not a part of this. Like, we're the holy ones. So those were the three responses. They had their own agendas, their own highest good of what they thought God should do and how they should do it, which is another question for us. What is our agenda? 
of what God should do right now and how he should do it. And what I would like to submit to you is that it probably, we have have just as much our own agendas and our own responses. And although there's, it, it can't be reduced to just like our political climate, a lot of it could be. We, it's a good litmus test for that. So fast forward, fast forward to this idea of repent and believe. Again, when you think of that phrase, repent, you don't have to say this out loud, what is your gut response, like a Rorschach test? What's your gut response? If I were to say, repent! For me, and a lot of people, especially if you grew up in our stream, a gut response might be to turn away from personal sin and engage in religious activity, which aren't bad things. And I, actually, if, if, you're, if you're engaging in something particularly destructive, I, I would definitely recommend that. Turn away from it, and religious activity can be, can be good. The problem is, it, the problem can be, is in order to practice religious activity, one doesn't necessarily need God. But it can, it can kind of fake us out, and then we can control it and can be really comfortable. So I want to give you some good news, is that that's not what this means here. When Jesus says repent and believe, he doesn't mean just turn from personal sin and start engaging in religious activity. So if you feel shame of like, oh man, I got to repent and I got to believe, or if, you know, it's, it's supposed to feel a little uncomfortable. Uh, that's not what, what, what Jesus is probably meaning. And we know this because a historian and aristocrat named Josephus he was born a little bit after Jesus was crucified. In, in AD 66, he worked for the Romans, but he was Jewish because he was an aristocrat. He was more on the Sadducee side. And his job was to stop rebel- Jewish rebellions from happening and, and basically have them join the Roman way of doing things because the Jewish people at that time were on their last straw. They were on their last straw before Rome was just going to like overpower them. And by the way, foreshadowing, in the year 8070, Rome did just that. They destroyed the simple the temple. They only left one wall, so you can actually go visit that wall right now, and pretty much wiped out and scattered the Jewish people because like three strikes all, that was the third strike. So Josephus, he loves his people, and he, he, he sees the writing on the wall. Like, we can't beat the Romans. We have to compromise. So he's trying to convince these Jewish rebels to stop doing that. And this is essentially what he says. Give up your own agenda and trust me, Josephus. Repent and believe in me. That's what he says. Almost the exact same phrase that Jesus uses. So does it involve a, a, personal, uh, a, a personal turning from rebelling against God? Absolutely. Does it involve practices that could bring us closer to God? Absolutely. But it has, just like the plan of salvation, it has much bigger context. It has this, this like bigger than us context of turning from our agenda and trusting the highest good that God says the highest good within community. That's essentially what it means. Trust God. Trust what the kingdom of God is and consider that maybe our, our sum and bottom, our highest good, maybe that's not the, the, the best race all the time. Not, I'm not saying that it's bad, but it's worth reflection. So now we get into the, the nuts and bolts. So how do we do that? And I want to suggest to you two different words in repentant belief. They're synonyms, because this is English translation anyway. It's, it, I promise you it's okay. So repentant belief, because someone's going to have baggage of that, because we think that belief is just in our minds. It's not what he's saying. Repent is actually more, it, it's more about turning. It's turning from your agenda 
in turning towards God agenda. Of course, you have to know what that is, of course. It's, it's more about turning. And believing is more about trusting, but trusting with your body. And I say trusting with your body because we so, we so easily just go back to our minds. Like, oh yeah, I'm just believing these, these cognitive ideas, these propositions. But we actually don't, that's not how we function. We're not, we're not driven by that. We're driven by our hearts. We're driven by our bodies. So it's turning and trusting with our whole self. It's turning and trusting with our bodies. So how do we do that? Which is a great question. Now, there are, there's so many ways to do that. There's not enough time to do them. And, and believe it or not, you're, you're practicing a lot of those already. So that is the good news. And in case you do feel shame, I just want to read a couple of passages to you um, through Eugene Peterson's. These are the words of Jesus. Eugene Peterson's translation in the message again. So here's the first one. And you're, these are familiar. But I'm, I'm, I'm reading these so that this doesn't become this, this mechanistic thing, this religious thing. Because we're prone towards religion. And that's not what this is. This isn't, this isn't a religious activity as, as much as it is a turning and trusting activity, a relational one. So the first one is Matthew 11, which you probably heard of this, but Eugene Peterson's translation. Are you tired? Worn out, burned out on religion, come to me, Jesus says. Get away with me and recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't let anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. So when Paul says that's the only race worth running about, that's the idea that Jesus has in mind of the race. It's not the hamster wheel that probably most of us are on anyways. It's not, that's not what he's talking about. Here, here's another way to, to, uh, to describe it. This is from John 15. I'm sure it's familiar to you. Jesus describes this as organic. I'm the real vine. Remember in, in the parable, he uses a vineyard. That's an Old Testament metaphor for, for God's kingdom. I'm the real vine, and my father is the farmer. He cuts off every branch of me that doesn't bear grapes. And every branch that is grape-bearing, he prunes back so it will bear even more. You were already pruned back by the message I've spoken. Live in me. Make your home in me, just as I do in you. In the same way that a branch can't bear grapes by itself, but only by being joined to the vine. You can't bear fruit unless you're joined with me. I'm the vine and you are the branches. When you're joined with me and I with you, the relation is intimate and organic. It's a flow. The harvest sure to be abundant. Separated, you can't produce a thing. Again, that's Eugene Peterson's translation, but the point is well taken. It does go back to this mosaic idea of Deuteronomy 30. I've, I've put before you life and death. Choose life. It's not, it's not a race to get, to get a prize of, of like you've earned something. It's, 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 it's the abundant life. It's the life that you were created for. The fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, and self-control. That's what we're talking about here. So to finish well, and, and that, that means, by the way, it assumes that we, we've, we've, we've been practiced, we've, we've been engaged in the race, and, and, and that's a metaphor, believing for faithfulness, for trusting. And what I'm saying is you can suitcase all of that with a repeated, I mean daily, turning and trusting with your whole body, not just your head. Daily, turning and trusting with your whole body. And it never, it, it, we, we, we might become, we can develop fruits of trusting, yes, but it's always, as, as our friend Larry Warner would say, it always will involve attention with intention. 
You, we're never circumventing that, which means it does take, take energy. So we're going to do a practice right now. Carrie, can you uh, maybe get someone else and pass these out? I always like to have handouts. If you've seen a Home Alone, I know you have. Remember the, the wet bandits? They always got to leave the faucet on. So I always have to have a handout. It's like my calling card, literally my calling card. So uh, the good news is you, you may not know this. You might know this. Larry Warner is a resident expert in this. He's an Ignatian scholar. He teaches classes on Ignatius, and our modern form of this is from St. Ignatius. That's Larry Warner, a part of this congregation. It's amazing. So I'm not going to do him justice. If you want the full white paper on this, so to speak, go to Larry Warner, um, and he'll correct everything I got wrong. But I put, my, I put my sources on here, including his website. That's one of the sources. There's, there's two examines. It's like a door. The first, the first part of the door is what Richard Foster calls the examine of, of consciousness. And that follows what the way that Richard Ward described it was this. We, don't, we, don't, we, cannot, we cannot attain, acquire God's presence because we're always totally in God's presence. What's absent is our awareness. So the examine of consciousness is simply being aware of God's activity in our lives. So it's not, it's not even invoking God's activity in our life. It's not beckoning. It's not like, oh, I want something really good, and we're trying to convince God to, to promote his grace and goodness in our life. The assumption is, no, God is already... His grace is already out for it. He's already all, all the time doing good in your life and in life of other people in his kingdom. It's just about awareness, period. And then it's, it's, it's focusing on your life. And then I think once you get practice in your life, then it's really good to do in groups as well. So that's what we're going to practice right now. The examine of conscience is a little different. And as Larry would say, this one we should hold off until we're convinced of God's love for us. Because when we spend time asking God for, hey, where are we not running this race? Where are we choosing our own agenda? It could feel like shame. It could feel like this, this burden that Jesus doesn't want us to have. And it, it's about us. It's kind of neurotic, right? But when you're fully convinced that God loves you, and the only way that you would know you're off course is because God showed you. Do you know that? It's only by grace that you'd even know I'm off. That's how much God loves you. And it's not punishment. It's life. It's fruit. And it's an ongoing process. That's why, that's why in history, confession has always been coupled with celebration. Because like, oh my gosh, I, w I, didn't even know that, I didn't even know that I'm off. Thank you, God. Because God is just like, it's more the, the, the father where the, the prodigal is returning home. That's God. It's not, it's not a, so if we have a view of God that's like this, and if we do that to other people, don't do the examine of conscience. That's the caveat. Just don't do it. Just do the consciousness. So you're just trying to be, and that's what we're going to practice right now. So I'm going to put some music on. So if you could turn to the examine of consciousness on the back, and there's some questions. So I would focus, right, and this is just a practice. I'm not saying you're going to have, this isn't about some incantation. It's not about, like, manipulating God to do something. It's not even about feeling something. It, that's not about, because that, that's us controlling God. That's us trying to be God. This is just trusting God. So you're, we're asking God, God, reveal your presence in my life. Start with just the last 24 hours. What brought me the most life today? Oh, what was draining? To, or you can choose one of those other questions. So I'm going to put some, uh, like, just uh, study. I call it study music. And we're going to take a few minutes, and you're just going to practice. Because I want you to see, like, oh, I can do this. I got this. No. But you know what I mean. It's like, um, okay, I think this is good. 
Hopefully this will work. And I'll let you know, I'll say amen when we're done. Please hold. You can start. I'll just hope that the music will come on.
All right, that was about five minutes. <clears throat> I think that's actually a good model of, um, uh, as a daily practice, you can just start with five minutes, and it's okay if nothing magic happens. It usually won't. Uh, it's more about building this muscle of being aware of God's presence in your life, and that's how we reorient our internal compass. And uh, Larry could tell you more because he's a little bit older than me and a lot wiser, but in my limited experience being younger than him, there is no other way. And obviously, Scripture is a part of that and community is a part of that. That's why Psalm 139 is a great passage. Any one of these passages from Matthew that we've been talking about. So yes, Scripture is a part of that. Community is a part of that. There's no other way of recognizing God's presence. And then when you feel like you're ready, practicing with it the examine of conscience, we're inviting God, just like the psalmist says, show me, is there any way, is there any offensive way in me? And then towards the end of the psalm, you notice he says something really honest. And this is David. Will you destroy my enemies? Like put them to death now. I want them dead now. I want their, you know, they took one of mine. I want five of them now. He basically says something really ugly because he has so much trust in God. And then he says, he bookends it with trust. But if that's offensive to you, if that's not your agenda, if that's not your summon bonum, don't do it. Change my heart. But that's where my heart is. But we have to practice this first so that we can receive and trust God to even be honest with God. And that's, that's essentially, without that, it would be hard to finish well because are we even on the only race worth running? The way that we do that, the way that we make our yes, yes, and our no, no, is we continually, daily turn to Jesus and trust with our whole bodies, our whole self. That's how we do it. And this is one way, not the way, a way to do this. Let us pray. God, thank you so much for your love and your grace. We do celebrate you this morning that we're here today, not by accident, that there's something that you are drawing us towards. Even though we have competing, competing visions, God, we still trust our trajectory, that the work that you've started is the work that we will be complete. And like Paul, with a great cloud of witnesses, we can say, I fought the beautiful fight, the only race worth running. I have believed. I have kept the faith. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.